Go ahead and find John chapter 4 with me. John chapter 4. I was uh, reading a book on prayer recently, and the author said something interesting about uh, what's sometimes called the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer of Jesus that he tells in Matthew 6. He said, when Jesus prayed, he also taught us about everything. When Jesus prayed, he also taught us about everything. I think there's a lot there. To, to, To listen to Jesus pray in that short little prayer, just a few lines, to listen to Jesus pray is to get a crash course in nearly everything. You see, it's, it's to learn who God is and how to relate to Him. So in the line, Our Father in Heaven, hallowed be Your name. There's, there's a lot there. To listen to Jesus pray is to consider the nature of God's kingdom and God's work and what God's up to in the world. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in Heaven. To listen to Jesus pray is to remember God's continual providence for us and His ongoing involvement in the world. And so the line is, Give us this day our daily bread. He's teaching us. To listen to Jesus pray is to connect our treatment of others to God's treatment of us. That's in the line, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And to listen to Jesus pray is to be warned of temptation and sin and the source of evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I just thought that was a very interesting insight. There might be a sermon coming soon on that. But to listen to Jesus pray a few lines is to get a crash course, not just on prayer, but pretty much everything. And as I thought about that some more, I think the same could be said of pretty much any section of Jesus' teaching. I think the word is pregnant. His his teachings are pregnant with meaning. That there is the obvious meaning on the surface, and then as we delve down, there's more and more layers. There's more and more to think about. And I have a similar thought when I read the conversation Jesus has in John 4 with the woman at the well. It's a conversation, as we read through it, that's not about one thing. It's really a conversation about everything. And I want us to think about that. This chapter meditates on Jesus' identity and his mission. It reveals what our real problems are and how we're often not even aware what our deepest needs are in ourselves. And it reveals what the real solution to our real problems are. It's a conversation that ranges from subjects on marriage to worship to racial prejudice to warring cultures to the Bible and all of these things. And I think there are just some deep lessons to learn from this conversation that is one of the most wide-ranging conversations that's maybe ever taken place. So this morning I want to share with you four lessons from this wide-ranging conversation at a well. Number one, what we see in this chapter is that Jesus conforms to God's will and not our expectations. So the story begins in John 4 with setting the geographical scene. And just in the setup here, there's something to be learned. This is verse 3, John 4 and verse 3. It says, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. And I think this detail alone is significant. He had to pass through Samaria. A brief history on Samaria shows us why this is a significant detail. So in the divided kingdom, when the king was divided north and south, Israel and Judah, Samaria originally was the name of a city that a king named Omri made his capital, Samaria. But eventually the entire region came to be known by the name of its capital, Samaria. Well, then you'll recall, 722 B.C., Assyria invades the northern kingdom. They deport most of the Israelites, and then they settled the land with foreigners who then intermarried with the remaining Israelites in the land. The descendants of that mixed population of 
what used to be Israel and then this imported group of foreigners, their descendants are known as Samaritans. And the Samaritans had sort of an idiosyncratic religion. So they accepted the Torah as canon, the first five books of the Old Testament. They accepted that as scripture, but none of the rest of the Old Testament. After Deuteronomy, they were checking out. They said, we don't need any of this other stuff. In the year 400 B.C., they erected a rival temple on Mount Gerizim, which becomes important to this conversation. Now, that temple was actually destroyed 200 years later in the 2nd century B.C., but they continued to make sacrifices on that mountain, and they continued to look at Mount Gerizim as their holy hill. Not Mount Zion in the temple, but Mount Gerizim. Well, when Judah, the southern kingdom, when they returned from Babylonian exile, they continued to view Samaria as sort of a group of racial half-breeds whose religion was hopeless, a hopeless and perverted form of Judaism. There was intense racial and religious hostility between Jews and Samaritans. And so for Jesus to pass through the region at all, that detail alone is significant because some Jews refused to even set foot in the region if they were headed to or from Galilee and Judah. They would often choose to make, take a longer route through Gentile territory rather than a direct route through Samaria. Just telling us the location of these events would have primed most Jews for prejudice in the story. In all likelihood, the, the disciples who are accompanying Jesus on this trip are uncomfortable simply with their route. All of it's a little too chummy with Samaria. But then, the next few verses, in the next few verses, Jesus presses even further into that discomfort. So this is John 4 and verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, it's going to get even more scandalous than just this. We're going to find out in the next paragraph that this woman has sort of a morally suspect history as well. But I think even in verse 7, there is a hint of this. Um, women normally came to draw water in groups, I'm told. They would all come as a group, and they would often do so at cooler parts of the day, either early in the morning or in the evening. The end of verse 6 tells us that this woman has come at the sixth hour. That's noon. That's the hottest part of the day. It's a part of the day when she is less likely to encounter others. There would not be a lot of people at the well. Uh, it's a sign, many people think, of her sort of outcast status. So when Jesus asks her for a drink in verse 7, she's taken aback on several levels. Number one, she's taken aback not only that he, a man, is talking to her, a woman, which alone is pretty scandalous in that time. Not only that he, a Jew, is talking to her, a Samaritan, but that he, this Jewish man, is talking to her, a social outcast. And if you skip ahead in the story, her astonishment with this whole dynamic is shared by the apostles in verse 27. So they, they leave to go get some food while Jesus is at the well. They return to find her conversing with her. This is verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said... No one said, what do you seek? There's about four layers of social customs Jesus is breaking in this story. One, he's talking with a woman. Two, he's talking with a Samaritan woman. Three, he's talking to a Samaritan woman of questionable morals. And four, he's talking to a Samaritan woman of questionable morals about the subject of theology, which is another known. 
So what are we learning? We haven't even got to the conversation yet. What are we learning from just the setup of this conversation? There are expectations shared by everyone in this story but Jesus. The Jews and the Samaritans disagreed in their beliefs, but they were in hearty agreement that they hated each other. The woman is surprised Jesus would speak to her, just as the apostles are surprised they find Jesus, when they find Jesus speaking to her. There was an agreement among enemies that their hatred of one another was justified. They agreed on this. They agreed that each other was excluded from the plans of God. That was their expectation. They all agreed, basically. They had opposite sides of the disagreement, but they agreed that there was hostility, and there ought to be. And it's into this world of hate that Jesus enters, and he confounds everyone's hate-filled expectations. He is not here to help the Jews further alienate the Samaritans, or vice versa, or to throw his lot behind the, the despised Samaritans and help them up and, and, and tamp down the Jews and alienate the Jews against the Samaritans, or vice versa. He doesn't come into this conflict and rubber stamp anyone's side's prejudice. He's here to offer, offer living water to whoever will take it. He's here to teach us that Samaritans are just as worthy of the gospel as Jews are. And he's here to teach us that Jews are just as in need of the gospel as Samaritans are. There is a deep and important lesson here that we need just as desperately as they need it. Because we all have our expectations. And we all have our preferences. And we all have our politics. And we all have our opinions. I've got them and so do you. And if we're honest, it's the fleshly part inside of us that would really like for God to come in and simply rubber stamp all of those opinions and expectations we have for us. We'd really God like for God to be the kind of God who just comes in and puts a rubber stamp on everything I think, for God to be on my side, for God to vindicate me and to put down everyone I don't like. But if there's one thing Jesus does consistently in the Gospels, it's to confound everyone's expectations. He makes everyone uncomfortable at some point. What Jesus comes for is for whosoever will. Even if that whosoever is someone you don't particularly like, Jesus has come for whosoever will. He comes to carry out his Father's will and not to fulfill our expectations, not to do our will. Well, let's get into the conversation a little bit. We see in the next part of this, beginning in verse 10, that Jesus offers us what we need, not necessarily what we want or what we think we need. So Jesus answered, this is Jesus' answer to the woman who's stunned that he would even talk to her. John 4 and verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? This is a reference earlier, we skipped over this, but the well that they're at is actually a well that Jacob had dug centuries earlier. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and the livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whatever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. So she asks in verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? 
And Jesus answers, if you understood who I was, you wouldn't be confounded with that. That wouldn't be the question you're asking me. You'd be the one asking me for a drink. You have a bucket to fetch water from this well, but I have another kind of bucket to fetch another kind of water, living water. Now, living water, if we're just being very literal, as she's sort of being, uh, living water refers to water from a fresh spring as opposed to water that's sitting in a stagnant pool. Um, Living water is better in every way. It's, It's less contaminated, it's more wholesome, it's cleaner, it's just better in every way, literally, but also symbolically it's better. And there are all sorts of Old Testament references, I think, in the background of Jesus' words. I'll just mention one offhand. But there are all sorts of references to this, comparing God's cleansing and renewing work to living water, that what God gives us is something like living water, something that cleans, something that refreshes, something that is perpetually renewed and never old and stale. So, for example, in in Jeremiah 2, God is described as the fountain of living waters. This is the kind of God we serve, the God who never runs out of sustenance for us. But as so often happens with the Gospel of John, Jesus is painting this giant spiritual picture in verse 10, but it's answered in verse 11 in a very wooden and literal way. And she says, well, Jacob provided, provided water for generations from this, from this location through digging this well. Are you proposing you can do better than Jacob without even having a bucket? What are you talking about? And Jesus explains in verse 13, Jacob's water quenches thirst temporarily. I'm offering water that permanently quenches. I'm offering something that continually pours out, and it pours out that which we need more than literal water. It pours out eternal life in the presence of God. Again, there's more rich allusions here to the Old Testament, particularly the the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, in the beginning of, of the book, Isaiah 12, is invited to draw water from the wells of salvation. It paints a picture in Isaiah 49 of a future without hunger or thirst, where we never are thirsty again. Or in Isaiah 55, there's a picture of eternal satisfaction provided even for foreigners and for sinners, which is apropos for this story. I even even read once, Jesus may even be appealing to an old Samaritan saying when he offers her living water. The Samaritans spoke of uh, someone called the Taheb, which is their word for Messiah. And they said of their Taheb... Water shall flow from his buckets. That was a Samaritan saying, looking forward to the Messiah. Water shall flow from his buckets. And so Jesus may even be referencing that expectation and connecting it to himself. But again, to all of this, in verse 15, she only gives a literalistic response. She says, you know, I really like the idea of not having to tote water from this well all the time. What I'm trying to show you is, when she wants to talk physical, Jesus keeps insisting on talking spiritual. No matter how many times she steers the conversation toward her immediate desire, toward the thing she would really like at this moment, despite how unable she is to understand what Jesus is even talking about, Jesus continues, continues to offer her what she actually needs. What she needs is a better kind of sustenance than what she thinks she needs. And Jesus says, despite the fact that you don't get it, I'm going to keep offering it. By the way, the same thing happens in verse 31, again at the end of the story. So the disciples, in verse 31, they arrive at this and witness this. They're surprised, but they're too afraid to say anything to Jesus about it. And they arrive with the food, and Jesus starts talking to them about another kind of food. So they have the literal food. They're thinking about the literal food, and Jesus wants to talk about other kinds of food. They're obsessed with lunch, but Jesus wants to talk about how ripe the fields are for harvest. I also think it's interesting. So... What sets in motion all these events is food and water. They go to get the food. He goes to get the water. 
But there's no sign in this chapter Jesus actually ingests anything. There's no statement that he ever drinks from the well. There's no statement that he ever eats the lunch that they bring him. He prioritizes this lesson to everyone. Seek better sustenance. I am here to give you what you actually need, even if you don't think that's what you actually need. Even if you don't feel that sort of hunger, I'm telling you that's the sort of hunger you should be feeling. Even if you don't understand what I'm talking about when I'm offering you this better thing, I'm going to keep offering this better thing and talking about it. What Jesus is saying in this chapter is, you are a spiritual creature with deep spiritual needs. And the dangerous thing about spiritual hunger is that people who are starving don't think they are. People who have deep spiritual hungers, people who are literally starving to death spiritually, don't think they are. And Jesus is trying to alert them to that. Jesus comes offering what we need, living water, not necessarily what we think we need or want at this moment. Third, we see in this conversation that Jesus is Lord over every place and everything. So in verse 16, in the middle of this conversation about living water, there seems to be an abrupt change of subject that I actually don't think is abrupt at all. This is verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus answered her, woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So how in the world do we go from talking about living water to her marital situation? That's what happens in verse 16. It seems like a non sequitur, but it's not. I think what Jesus does in verse 16 is set the conversation down the path of addressing her actual thirst, her existential thirst. What he begins addressing is, I think, the place in life where she is looking for satisfaction but will not find it. The place in life where she's looking to, be, to be, have her thirst quenched, to have her desires met, but is not going to have them met outside of Jesus. There's something we all have. We all have this thirst. We all have a desire for something that will make us whole, and the reason we have that desire is because there does exist something that makes us whole. There does exist something that will fill in that gap. There is something that exists that will satisfy us once and for all. The philosopher Blaise Pascal called it a God-shaped hole in every man's heart. Every man has a God-shaped hole in his heart. A deep hunger that nothing but God can satisfy. But the lot of many of us is that we keep trying to fill that God-shaped hole with something that's not God. We keep trying to satiate ourselves and to, and to fulfill the spiritual hunger with something that will not actually fulfill it. And what Jesus is doing in verse 16 is putting his finger 
on what she is trying to fill her, what she's trying to satisfy her existential thirst with, which is men and marriage. That's what she's trying to make it all better with. If I just get another man, he will make it all better. Knowing her situation already, he says in verse 16, go call your husband. And her response is, in verse 17 is very curt, it's very short. She simply says, I have no husband. And the way I read it is to sort of ward off any further probing into what turns out to be a very me- a messy marital history. She says, no, nah, we don't want to talk about that. But Jesus gently reveals he knows about that history. And he commends her for speaking truthfully. He says, you've spoken truthfully. Maybe it's unintentionally. Maybe she meant to deceive him, but it's actually true what she said literally. Because it turns out she's had a string of husbands and is currently living with a man who is not her lawful husband in verse 18. So presumably she's still lawfully married to one of the previous five, but she's not in actuality married to the man she's shacked up with right now. The picture being painted is she is seeking from men what can only be satisfied by God. Just as she thought she needed physical water but really needed living water, she thought she needed another man when what she really needed was God. And she wouldn't have a good relationship with men until she understood her relationship with God. Jesus' precise knowledge of her situation proves to her in verse 19, you must be some sort of prophet, which leads her to give another subject change. This time she initiates the subject change, a question about holy hills. I tend to read this, you know, sometimes it's easier to talk about uh, big theological questions than to address my own personal sin and failings and idolatries. We'll change the subject to things that aren't so personal. So let's, I got a question for you, Mr. Prophet. What about this holy hill? So she asked a question about the holy hill. And we need to talk a little bit about the background of her question. What she asks is, Jews and Samaritans disagreed over the right, what the rightful place of worship was. And essentially what they disagreed on was the meaning of this verse in Deuteronomy 12 and verse 5 which says, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all of your tribes and put his name and make a habitation there. So God says, I will have a place, a place where I will dwell among my people, a holy place. Now the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament, said God would have a permanent temple built, he could dwell among his people. Jews and Samaritans disagreed over what that place was. Now we say, well, isn't it obvious? The Jews recognized the authority of the whole Old Testament, And it was obvious in the rest of the New Testament, Jerusalem is that place. God makes clear to David and Solomon, Mount Zion will be the location of the temple. That's where it's built. But remember, Samaritans didn't think anything after Deuteronomy was canonical. In Deuteronomy, they don't even have possession of Jerusalem yet. And so what was obvious to the Jews, Jerusalem was that place. Samaritans said, no, we don't have that precedent. Why Jerusalem? What's special about Jerusalem? They saw Mount Gerizim as the answer to Deuteronomy 12. And they had their reasons as well. Um, I, share, I, I think this is just interesting. Maybe, maybe you won't. But they, their reasons were things like this. You know, Mount Gerizim, this mountain, overlooked Shechem. And Shechem was the place where Abram first built an altar in Canaan in Genesis 12. And so this is clearly an important place of worship, this place. Uh, Mount Gerizim was also the mountain on which Israel shouted the covenant blessings. In Deuteronomy 27, there's this scene where one half of Israel stands on one mountain and the other stands on another. And half of them pronounced the curses that would befall them if they neglected the covenant. The other pronounced the blessings God would give them if they kept the covenant. And the blessing group stood on Mount Gerizim. They said, this is an important symbolic mountain. 
And then in the Samaritan Bible, they had a different order of things. In the Samaritan Bible, directly after the Ten Commandments comes Deuteronomy 27, that passage where they shout from the different mountains, which in their mind tied the law to this location, the Mount Gerizim. That's the controversy she's asking Jesus to weigh in on. And Jesus responds in about three parts. First of all, in verse 21, he says, very soon this entire question will be irrelevant. Don't tie your faith to a mountain. And so in verse 21, he says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will we worship the Father. Nevertheless, verse 22, the second part of his answer, he does insist on the Jewish understanding of this because they had the whole of Scripture. They stand in the stream of God's true and saving revelation despite the fact they misunderstood that revelation themselves in many ways, but they have the revelation. They understand. But he comes back in verse 23 and he explains what will render obsolete both claims. Zion or Gerizim. And so he says in 23, The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Just a a couple of chapters earlier, Jesus has explained a greater temple will soon be raised. And when it is, when Jesus is risen from the dead, when he is the temple, the center of true worship will shift from a temple on a mountain to a temple in a person. God is spirit, is a line he uses. This emphasizes God's omnipresence. A spirit can be present everywhere and not just one place. God is not confined to a building, so true worship won't be focused on a building or on a mountain, but on the God whose sovereign reign extends over every inch of creation. What Jesus is explaining is, when when I become the temple the mountain question looks really silly. So let's not focus on settling this. Let's focus on what the new temple is going to be. The real task, he says to her, is to actually know the God we're worshiping. What matters won't be the location of our worship, but the manner of it in spirit and in truth. And what will matter is the hearts of these worshipers. The Father is seeking such people, spirit people, truth people, to worship him. So what I want you to see is that what both parts of this conversation have in common, the marriage questions and then the mountain questions, what they have in common is this. Jesus, the lordship of Jesus is everywhere. It's over every place and it's over everything. Not only is is he the lord over every inch of creation, Gerizim, Zion, and anywhere else, not only is he lord over every inch of creation, he is lord over every aspect of life. He's not interested in being the Lord of one mountain but not another. And neither is he interested in being Lord over one part of your life but not another. What he's saying is he is the Lord in the church. He is the Lord in our worship. Those are obvious. But then it just keeps going. He's Lord in our marriages. He's Lord in what what it is that we think makes us whole and gives us satisfaction in life. He's Lord in our attitudes. He's Lord in our money management. He's Lord in our time management. He's Lord in our childbearing. He's Lord in our emotions. As one man has said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There is nothing in our lives over which the sovereign Lord does not cry, that belongs to me. Jesus is Lord over every place and everything. And finally, 
I want to show you at the end of the story that sharing faith is nearly indistinguishable from having faith. So verse 27 records the prejudicial reaction of Jesus' disciples toward the woman. They're scandalized by his conversation with her, but too afraid to say anything to Jesus. But in verse 28, their prejudice is contrasted with her eagerness and her evangelistic spirit. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. So she'd come to fill her water jar. That was her whole purpose for visiting the well. But she leaves the water jar to run to the town to tell her brethren about the man she's just met. She has understood, I think, what living water was and that it took precedent over this stale well water. She understood that she had found the one who satisfies better than Jacob's well can, who satisfies better than a slew of husbands It's also striking, by the way, this woman who had come to this well alone at a time of day when so she would be left alone, she now goes to the city to fetch a bunch of people. It's a picture of a woman whose shame has been lifted, who is transformed and who is now a bold witness and raises the interest of her countrymen. So skip down to verse 39. We see the result of her efforts. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. That was her testimony. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That so many Samaritans come to Jesus at the woman's word speaks to the power of her testimony. But then we're told as they see and hear Jesus from themselves, it's really the power of her testimony takes a back seat as they see the power of Jesus himself, which is always the goal of preaching and good, good preaching and good evangelism, which is don't be impressed with me, be impressed with the one I'm telling you about. I'm very interested in their confession of verse 42. It really ties the whole story together. They say this, we know this indeed is the Savior of the world. Again, The fact that he's Jewish and they're Samaritans with all the prejudicial baggage that carried is no longer a problem if he's the savior of the world. They rightly understand he hasn't come as the Jewish Messiah to consolidate Jewish power over and against all Jewish rivals like the Samaritans. He hasn't come to pronounce the winner in the Zion versus Gerizim debate. He has come to seek out true worshipers wherever they can be found. What the Samaritans do basically in, uh, in verse, in verse uh, 42 is essentially confess the truth of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his son. They essentially confess the truth of John 3.16 in a way Jesus' countrymen in Judea and Galilee never really do. They understand Jesus better than almost anyone in the Gospel of John. But back to the woman whose testimony convinced her brethren of this. I want you to notice this woman doesn't get a degree in theology in order to be qualified to tell people about Jesus. She doesn't need a few years of seasoning before she's comfortable sharing her faith. She doesn't receive a handbook with all the right techniques about this sort of stuff. 
what happens is she believes Jesus is the Messiah. She comes to understand that he is the answer to her spiritual thirst that she didn't even know she had. And then in the overflow of the excitement and the satisfaction she now feels in Christ, she tells people. For her, having faith and sharing faith are nearly indistinguishable. Reminds me, there's a great line in Psalm 116 that Paul quotes in 2 Corinthians 4. It goes like this. I believed and so I spoke. I believed and so I spoke. Speaking about Jesus is a natural consequence of having believed in him. How could we not? If we really believed this about Jesus, this man who told me everything I ever did, this man who put his finger on what was actually wrong in my life and all the wrong ways I'd been trying to fix what was wrong in my life, this person who can fix everything, if we just listen to him, how could I not share him? What person that I love would I possibly want to keep away from this person who's going to be the answer to all of our deepest problems? Who would I not want to tell about him? For this woman, sharing faith is nearly indistinguishable from having faith. And so it's a conversation about everything. It's a conversation about Jesus' identity and mission. It's a conversation about what our real problems are and what the real solution to them is. It's a conversation about marriage, about worship, about prejudice and warring cultures, about the Bible. And so what I want to say as we end is Jesus is offering you what he offered this woman. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Jesus offers what we truly need to heal us and to satisfy us once and for all, to sustain our lives forever. It's Jesus who has it. And you're trying to satisfy that hunger, that thirst, in a dozen other ways. And Jesus says, until you understand what your real problem is, you won't come and get the solution to it. He says, that water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Believe in me, get this water, and you yourself will become a source of it. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so maybe there's someone here this morning that wants to come and get that living water, who wants to come and accept Jesus' evaluation of what's really wrong with us, and to come and get his solution to it. If you need to come get that living water, to be baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Whatever your spiritual need, I invite you to come forward as we stand and sing. Thank you for being here. We meet this evening at 5.
So if you can, let's all be in our place and we'll worship God again together. Richard, if you would, lead us in a prayer and we'll be dismissed. <laughs>